You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. So glad to be with you for this special episode, kind of a surprise episode. This is a bi-weekly podcast, but with the debates uh, held this week, we thought that it would be good to try and get an episode out to you as soon after the debates as possible. And gosh, we just have the best guest to help us talk about the debates and the state of the race, Aaron Haynes Wack. Aaron is the Associated Press's national reporter for race and ethnicity. She's been covering the 2020 campaign extensively. Uh, she just got back last week from an NAACP convention. She's obviously been looking at the debates, has spent time on the campaign trail, uh, has had some really major exclusive interviews with uh, some of the candidates. And so we're just thrilled to have Aaron uh, on the show. We're going to talk about the debates, but also going to take a look at particularly how uh, various campaigns are trying to win uh, the votes of African Americans and what Aaron thinks is on the mind of black voters in this country and how they're responding to the various candidates and what they're looking for from the candidates. And so, so thrilled to have Aaron with us. I am recording right now just after the second debate. And obviously, there's a lot to talk about. Won't have the opportunity to sort of cover everything. But I did think it might be worthwhile to do a rundown of some of the highlights. Uh, in, in the first debate, we had the front runners or the top tier represented in Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. We also had Pete Buttigieg, uh, Beto in that, in that, uh, in that debate, Amy Klobuchar. And, and I have to say, I think Amy Klobuchar had a good night. She, uh, didn't go for the kill. That's not the kind of politician she is. Uh, that's not what, how she's won her races in Minnesota. I will say, and she seemed to suggest this in an interview uh, after the debate, Amy Klobuchar is someone who anticipates being on the stage in September, who anticipates being able to raise the money and have the level of support she needs to be on the debate stage. And because she isn't a political assassin, uh, because she isn't the kind of candidate who's going to sustain a lot of free media uh, for months and months. I think Amy Klobuchar is staking her candidacy on retail politics in this stage and the ability to pop at the right time. And so uh, I do think it's worth reserving judgment on Amy Klobuchar so long as she continues to meet the thresholds for making the debates she is someone that can gain traction uh, when we get into October, November, December. I think she did enough in this debate to remain uh, relevant. That's worth watching out for. I also think Beto showed some strength. He's another candidate who certainly flagged off from expectations before he jumped in. He had uh, a, a disappointing showing in the first debate. In this debate, he bounced back. He had some very good moments. He seemed strong. He seemed to have a, a, a message. He seemed to have a strategy. He has, as we've talked about on this show before, and as I've certainly written about, 
Uh, and as, you know, disclosure, she, uh, she was my former boss on the 2012 campaign, but Beto's campaign manager is Jen O'Malley Dillon, one of the most respected, uh, political strategists and operatives in the Democratic Party, really in the country. And that's who Beto chose as his campaign manager. It was actually reported recently that Barack Obama encouraged Jen O'Malley Dillon to take the job. Jen is going to be able to set up a significant political operation behind Beto so that if he's able to stay in, if he does his job as a candidate, there will be the infrastructure there to to support him and, and make him uh, viable so long as he uh, uh, plays his role. It's not going to be an easy road ahead. Beto did show some promise in that debate. So I think they have to be uh, they, they have to be feeling pretty good uh, coming out of this debate. Feel like it's something to build on. And again, Beto is someone who has the fundraising network that, that he can stay in this race for a while. And so that's going to be interesting to see. I think Elizabeth Warren had a, had an incredibly strong height. You know, as I wrote about in my uh, newsletter, which again, you can sign up for my newsletter at reclaiminghope.substack.com, where uh, throughout the week I provide exclusive analysis on faith, 2020, politics generally. Uh, so would urge you to, to sign up and subscribe for that. But earlier this week, I wrote in the newsletter that uh, while I've been critical and, and remain critical of uh, Warren for, in my view, being sort of overly conflict-oriented. What she's gra- gaining some credit for and what she really displayed in the debate on Tuesday was that at least for Democratic primary voters, her conflict is oriented in the right direction. Her conflict is is oriented towards uh, those that Democrats would consider, uh, Democratic voters would consider to be real enemies, health insurance industry, uh, big banks, uh, uh, Wall Street, uh, corporations, uh, Donald Trump, certainly. And she's refused uh, really almost entirely to train her fire on fellow Democrats. And, you know, as we see this race accelerate, as we see Bernie and Kamala and Biden and Booker uh, combat one another and criticize one another. There might be Democratic primary voters that see in Warren someone who maintains Democratic statesmanship, a, a sort of a, a focus on who the real enemies are. Joe Biden is not the real enemy in the in the uh, in the minds of the vast majority of Democratic primary voters. And yet, in order to overtake him in this primary, some of the candidates might be in danger of, of starting to treat him in that way. And and that could be a big pitfall. Elizabeth Warren is avoiding that. And so it's worth keeping an eye on. You know, that's the first debate. I, I, I think Klobuchar uh, did well. I think Beto did well. I, I think Warren maintained her status as one of the top uh, two Three certainly top four candidate, uh, but I can I, I believe we'll continue to see her edge her way into that uh, second place uh, position. The one other candidate I want to talk about from Tuesday is uh, Pete Buttigieg. Now I, I think Pete Buttigieg did some important stabilizing work. He after again some some tough weeks in his uh, town of South Bend. Uh, where he faced some significant questions around policing, around race, and a debate that didn't necessarily go as well as he had hoped 
uh, last time around, I think he did a stabilizing job. But what I want to really comment on is his comment, which took up a line of argument that he's used before. He's used it against Mike Pence. He's used it against Republicans generally when it comes to child separation at the border. But he used it in a really surprising instance on Tuesday, which is he basically said that, quote, so-called conservative Christian senators were holding up a minimum wage bill for to make minimum wage $15, which he supported. And then he quoted scripture, basically implying that if you disagree with him on what the minimum wage should be, that that is putting in question your faith in his mind. And I just want to warn Democratic candidates, but really warn Christian Democrats, warn progressive Christians against taking this approach. I think there is a temptation, particularly after Republicans for decades have used this kind of rhetoric against progressive, uh, against various communities, to, to say that if you don't share Republican positions, you aren't a real Christian or you're outside of the American mainstream. Well, that was destructive then. It, that, that was uh, harmful to the American fabric, harmful to the church in my view then. I would, again, strongly advise against turning that same tactic around only in defense of progressive uh, positions. It is not right to suggest that a view on the minimum wage is a new kind of religious dogma. Now, certainly, something that has guided my politics has been a belief that in Christianity, there's uh, what the Catholics call a preferential option for the poor. I certainly believe that in a Christian's politics, concern for the poor should play a significant role. That's different than speaking to one prudential policy issue and using that as a kind of religious litmus test. That's a that's a dangerous place to be. We don't want to go there. Uh, when you use the tactic in support of one cause, that opens up the plausibility to use that tactic in support of a whole range of causes. There are major voices, politicians and activists who are now calling for, a, a, a many of them uh, Christian, calling for a $20 minimum wage. So should they be able to say that Pete Buttigieg is not a real Christian because he's only supporting a $15 minimum wage? No, of course not. We need to be really careful in the words of C.S. Lewis of not proclaiming God hath said when God has not spoken at all. God has uh, much to say about poverty, much to say about violence, much to say about human dignity. And those values, those principles need to influence our politics. We need to be really careful about not pretending to speak for God on what the minimum wage uh, should be. Uh, and certainly not using that as a weapon against uh, against Christians or against uh, fellow Americans. So it's really important. Let's talk about the second debate, Wednesday night's debate. And on the stage you had, of course, Front runners Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. They also had Julian Castro uh, on stage. I will say I do think Julian Castro made another step in his candidacy. Now he's he's not polling very well. He's having trouble raising money. A lot is going to need to fall in place for him to be a serious candidate uh, in this race. But well, in the first debate, he certainly made a striking impression among sort of progressive activists in particular. He maintained his progressive credentials and his progressive posture in the debate today, while also making a kind of implicit argument that 
uh, he can be electable as well, that he's willing to uh, use rhetoric that is perhaps more typical among broad swaths of the American electorate. So you saw him in his opening and closing statement talk about what a great country uh, this is and about how he believed that there was much in America's past that's worth preserving. And uh, he, you didn't hear him uh, go on a sort of long talks about reproductive justice and using terms and phrases that are common on sort of social media and common among sort of intellectual progressive left, but that most Americans just, and even most Democratic primary voters just don't, don't know much about. Uh, and so I think Castro is someone who's going to continue to capture the attention of, of many. I'd also say Cory Booker, who I've been saying for months, is going to have a moment. Uh, he is going to have a period in this race where he spikes in the polls. And the only question uh, for in my mind is whether he'll be able to sustain and take advantage of that moment. My opinion is only stronger uh, after his debate performance on Wednesday. Uh, Cory Booker was very strong, very strategic, made some good criticisms of uh, opponents, some effective criticisms of opponents. Uh, Cory Booker also maintained a, uh, a sense of joy and lightness. We saw him joking. Uh, we saw him being willing to uh, smile. I do think that's that upliftedness is important in politics generally, especially important in Democratic primary politics. Uh, I tweeted and Booker's campaign manager actually shared, I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, never underestimate in a Democratic primary the candidate who has joy and is able to express hope. Democratic primary voters tend to, re tend to revert back to a positive posture no matter how dark things might be. Uh, and so that's something to look forward uh, for. I don't know if the spike is necessarily going to come. I expect Booker will see a bit of a bump. I'm not sure if he had the big moment that I expect him to have where um, we'll see him really capture uh, the imagination of, of many voters. I'm not sure if he had that moment on Wednesday. He certainly did well. He certainly stuck out. I expect that he'll raise uh, quite a bit of money. I believe he'll be able to leverage the performance among donors. And we'll just have to see how he does moving forward. He certainly set himself up well for the next debates in September. And then, of course, we saw Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, I think, put to bed questions that he's not willing to defend himself, uh, that he is sort of either going to walk to the nomination or uh, not really fight hard to get it. We saw a, a fighter uh, in on the debate stage on Wednesday. We saw someone that wants to advance a sort of energetic centrism, if if that's even what you want to call Joe Biden. He's certainly a centrist in in this Democratic primary, uh, but but I'm not sure uh, the po the policies he's advancing would be centrist in uh, just you know four, eight years ago. But but that was really what he was. He was not Jeb Bush in this debate. He was not the guy who's supposed to win, but isn't really able or willing to fight. Joe Biden is not going to go down without uh, without a fight. And so I thought he definitely recovered from his first debate. I think some of the donors uh, that 
were threatening to sort of leave or maybe we're getting a little antsy. I think he got his his financial supporters back on board. I think we'll see him have a very strong uh, uh, very strong fundraising haul over the next week or so. Of course, we won't actually know that until the unless this campaign decides to release it, but we won't know officially until the next quarter of fundraising is reported. But Biden did did well for himself tonight. It was a little uneven. He, he he's not fully in sort of. Uh, I think the the fighting shape will need to get in to actually seal up the nomination. Uh, but he certainly stopped bleeding that was going on. He certainly gave his supporters some confidence moving forward, which, you know, August is historically difficult month for front runners. And if he had not done well on this debate and had to wait until September to get on the debate stage again, it would have been a really difficult position for him. Harris. Harris had an interesting night. Some people were surprised to see Biden go after Harris uh, with the first question of the debate that he received. I, I think it's clear the Biden's team decided Harris is too effective on the offensive and to play a wait and see approach to see if Harris was going to go after Biden again when all signs were indicating that that she she was not going to let up that Biden had to sort of take the reins to the extent he could and try and put Harris on the defensive. I think he did that. I also think Harris was put on the defensive by the fact that it wasn't just Biden going uh, after her. She had to fend off attacks from Tulsi Gabbard, from other candidates on stage, uh, which is really precisely what I what I warned after uh, the first debate, which was, you know, the danger for Harris was peaking too early when she has a lot to criticize on both her left and right flank. And I think we started to see that. Now, look, Harris is a tremendously strategic, talented politician. And she even showed that in the interview on CNN following the debate. This was not a um, a death knell for her candidacy. What it did, though, was it opened up some weaknesses that hadn't been exposed on a big stage for her up to this moment, because this was really the first debate where she was firmly in the first tier of candidates. She you know, is now going to have to do similar cleanup and similar, I think, assuring to her supporters that, ironically, Biden had to do because of her <laughs> uh, and his own performance. But, you know, really pressured by her uh, that, that Biden had to do after his first debate in June. Now Harris is going to have to do uh, some of that assuring of her supporters and the stakes will be high for her in September. I, I, I know that I have listeners that like Andrew Yang, and I think Andrew Yang is someone who raises really incisive, helpful points that, you know, we'll see if he could pop further. He's certainly polling better than a lot of the senators and governors and uh, Congress members on stage. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if he's able to not just have like a strong 2 to 4%, but if he's someone who can gain 8 to 10% of uh, Democratic primary voters uh, in some of these polls, and and then we'll really be able to take him seriously from a political, you know, perspective in this race. I, at this point, I think his primary, like, role is going to be in strengthening the other candidates. I can see many campaigns taking some of his ideas, which for an idea-oriented candidate, especially one that's never run for public office before, that's one of the reasons you get in the race, to to influence the process in a way that uh, really, outside of extraordinary circumstances, only other candidates can, can do. 
I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a personal fan of Michael Bennett. I'm not sure this is the right environment for him to run in, but he is someone who, as I've said before, has been able to combine a bold policy vision with a sort of pragmatic bipartisan disposition, which is rare these days and which I, I think should be valued. Jay Inslee, the governor from Washington, who I've not been a huge fan of, I think comported himself very well and I think showed a bit of why he thought he should run. And he certainly has a message and a pressure point around climate change. Those are the debates. We'll have more opportunities to talk about the debates. We're going to talk about the debates with Aaron Haynes Wack coming up right after this break. I'm so excited to introduce you to Aaron to talk about, again, the debates and about so much going on in 2020. When we get back, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith 2020 Podcast. As I've mentioned, just thrilled to have Aaron Haynes Wack with us. Aaron is AP's national reporter on race and ethnicity. She's been on the campaign trail. She's been paying close attention to these candidates, having exclusive interviews with many of them. Uh, She's obviously been paying attention to the debates. And so we're going to have a conversation with Aaron coming up, and I hope you enjoy it. Here is my talk with Aaron Haynes-Wack. It is just a great pleasure to welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast, Aaron Haynes-Wack from the AP. Uh, Aaron is the Associated Press's national writer on race and ethnicity, an award-winning journalist, and really an essential voice for those who want to understand uh, 2020. Aaron, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, listen, thank you for having me, and thanks for those kind words. I'm going to have to add you to the prayer list now. (laughs) <laughs> that's good. That's good. I, I, I could use that. Uh, Aaron, uh, let, let's let's jump right in. I'm so interested to hear what stuck out to you from the last couple of nights of, of debates this week. What, what stuck out to you uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday from the Democratic candidates? Well, sure. I mean, I think, as you know, I cover race and ethnicity for the Associated Press. And, and primarily these days, I am focused on kind of themes of race and how they're playing out in the 2020 election. And that's certainly what I was looking for in the debate uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And what I really found striking was that there seemed to be a missed opportunity, at least to me, for these candidates to really address Black voters directly in Detroit. Mm. You know, I mean, we're talking about a city with a Black population of 80%, you know, where the Flint water crisis is ongoing. Right. And in a state where President Donald Trump won by only 11,000 votes, right? So the Black vote uh, could be crucial in flipping that state in 2020. And and that's something that most of these candidates seem to be aware of earlier this month when they were in town in Detroit for the NAACP convention. Uh, and they outlined a Black agenda to attendees there, but didn't really hear very much of that happening, at least uh, on, on the first night, you know, where I saw race basically nearly absent. It took, I would say, well over an hour. Uh, it was, it was kind of in, in the final stretch of, of Tuesday night's debate that you, you heard the first mention of, of Flint or even Baltimore. And I think that, you know, you had a lack of diversity on stage that really translated into little discussion about issues that were specific to Black voters, though I certainly don't want to suggest that Black voters are not issues voters as well who care about other topics like the economy or climate change or healthcare. But I think last night you saw a much more robust uh, discussion on a range of subjects uh, from the water crisis in Flint to police and criminal justice reform, 
to, you know, the candidates being asked directly to pitch to voters why they are the best position candidate to address the racial divide in America. You know, I, I want to ask generally a bit later on, but but what uh, did anything stick out to you from their answers in, in that section, which I agree, you know, especially since the debate was in Detroit, as you mentioned, they had been in Detroit just recently for the NAACP convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some of this conversation came late. Do you think any candidate during the debates was was closest to where sort of the broadest swath of black voters, uh, black Democratic primary voters are uh, and, and what they're looking for? Well, I think, you know, what you saw on display was really uh, kind of a choice between pragmatism versus kind of the more passionate, bolder uh, agenda and what these voters really think uh, is going to t- it's going to take to win, because most of the black voters, especially that I talk to, their number one priority, regardless of who the nominee is, is, is beating Donald Trump. Uh, and so that uh, is, is really front of mind for them in terms of, you know, an electability question, if you will. But uh, on the topics of race, I mean, there were certainly some moments. Yeah, you know, I don't know that these candidates, certainly these are not people that are necessarily polling very well. But there were some moments that drew applause that, that had to do with race. Thinking about Tuesday night's performance by Marianne Williamson, who talked about you know, the collectivized hatred that needs to be addressed in this country and the frank discussion that Democrats need to be having on race if they expect to earn the black vote. And I'm thinking about Beto O'Rourke's remarks you know, around the legacy of slavery and his pledge to create a commission to study reparations if he's elected president. And then on Wednesday... Uh, it was interesting because we saw candidates like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Governor Jay Inslee that were speaking directly to uh, their white privilege and the importance of using that platform as candidates to confront systemic racism. And so I do think that that is something that black voters expect to hear from both from the candidates of color uh, in this diverse field and from white candidates who, who will need to appeal to the most loyal and consistent voting block of the Democratic Party if they expect to win the nomination. Yeah. You know, one thing that I'm... I find interesting about the pursuit of black voters in 2020 and sort of the the conversation around race is, you know, we we have recent, you know, data out, whether you look at the Hidden Tribe survey or or there's been other data that seems to suggest that actually it's white liberals who are conversant out to the to the left of uh, even some of these questions around racial injustice and questions, particularly around some of the more academic language that's used, acknowledging your white privilege, intersectionality, that kind of thing. And so how, how do you think about that sort of disconnect from sort of the elite conversation around the quote unquote black issues and the way that Black folks in church pews and just in communities are thinking about the political questions of the day. I mean, well, you know, uh, frankly, uh, what I am hearing a lot from Black voters that I'm talking to on the campaign trail is that for them, racism is just very much on the ballot. You know, as much as education or healthcare or the economy, they are concerned about racism as a life or death issue, frankly for them in the hyper-racial climate that, you know, has has been looming over this country uh, over the past few years uh, and that they see as being fueled by President Trump and are thinking, you know, getting rid of him uh, will be the first step to really addressing that climate. And so that is a concern for them. And they are viewing a lot of how they're, how they plan to make their decision through that lens. But, you know, I want to, I wanted to uh, back up to, to your, to your point though about white 
liberals. And frankly, just the, the question of white identity is something that I really think we have seen evolve under the Trump administration, right? Because uh, you've got, for example, Vice President Joe Biden kind of running on a, this is not who we are, and this is a battle for the soul of a conversation. And you know, I think that there are a lot of white Americans, frankly, who for whom that message does resonate, who are wanting to reject a lot of what they kind of see um, in terms of, you know, like the nativist tone that they see coming out, out of the White House and, and not wanting their friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members to think that they are aligned with that rhetoric or, and or policy, right? So you see them really kind of aligning themselves more with voters of color showing up for them, at least in terms of showing that kind of allyship. It'll be interesting to see how that translates into actual turnout at the ballot. You know, I think what we know is that you have not had a Democrat win a majority of white support in in some cycles. Around 40% is about the best that they do. I mean, Barack Obama, for all the talk of his multiracial coalition, did not win a majority of white voters. Uh, in 2008 or 2012. And and of course, we know that Hillary Clinton did not do so in 2016. Erin, let's uh, zoom out a bit from the debates. And I'm just interested, you just spent time at the NAACP convention. I know you've spent time in South Carolina. You've had exclusive interviews uh, with several of the candidates surrounding how they're approaching a race and approaching trying to reach out to black voters in particular. Uh, who Who's putting in the most work? Uh, who, who do you hear from uh, leaders and influential activists on the ground is doing the work that's necessary to, to be successful? And do you see any potential surprises uh, when it when it comes to who might spark among black voters? You definitely have seen some retail politics playing out on the ground, especially in states like South Carolina, which has something like a, um, a two thirds of their uh, primary electorate is, is African-American. And uh, that is a state where Joe Biden, frankly, is enjoying enormous uh, support, even though he got into the race later uh, than a lot of uh, some of these other 2020 Democratic hopefuls. He has, I guess, for lack of a better word, good credit uh, with the black community in South Carolina. They know him. He has been there. Uh, you know, obviously he campaigned there with uh, with Barack Obama. The vice president was actually the most in-demand surrogate in 2018 on the campaign trail. He was the one that the Democratic Party wanted making the case for various candidates, including candidates of color, you know, to help usher in uh, what ended up being that, you know, most diverse Congress that we've ever seen. And so, you know, Joe Biden uh, does have ties uh, to, to the black community. And, and I think that that is paying off for him, even though, you know, he is somebody who has not necessarily been on the trail a ton, uh, at least not in the beginning. Other than that, I mean, uh, Senator Kamala Harris has certainly spent a lot, a lot of time on the ground in South Carolina. She is definitely making a play for that state and, and a win for her in, in the first really diverse early primary state would be huge. Same for Cory Booker. You know, but but uh, neither one of them are polling particularly well with the black community in South Carolina. And so they've got more work to do uh, there. But, you know, what from what their campaigns tell me, they are, you know, still introducing themselves to a lot of the state. You know, it is still very early, despite, uh, you know, enthusiasm of some of us in the media class. You know, most uh, voters uh, are not paying attention. I will tell you, Michael, uh, anytime I need a reality check, I just call home 
and ask my mom if she is aware of, of whatever story I have been chasing. And my mom is a super voter. So she is not somebody who is not civically engaged, but she is somebody who is not necessarily interested in, you know, keeping up with 20 plus candidates uh, at, at this point in the game. You know what I mean? The other, the other thing I would mention, though, uh, is, you know, Mayor Pete, for all the money that he has raised, that has not yet translated for him into Black support. And, and not just the money, but also he has rolled out a pretty extensive policy aimed directly at Black America. Um, and, 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 you know, he is in the process of, of kind of explaining that to people and laying that out to folks on the trail. And and by the way, he is laying that plan out to black and white audiences because he feels like it's important to to deal with race uh, as part of his campaign. But but that so far has not translated into a boost for him uh, with black voters. And so, uh, you know, we have certainly asked him quite a bit what that is about, but I think it's about time for us to start asking black voters what's up with them not supporting Mayor Pete. I do want to ask, uh, I, I was planning to ask you about Mayor Pete. You know, there's been so much attention on uh, you know his his faith rhetoric and you know in the debate on Tuesday he referred to the minimum wage which you know you'll know the fight for a minimum wage is central to like Reverend William Barber's efforts and you know what I haven't seen pointed out explicitly among too many people but it seems apparent to me is that I think Mayor Pete views faith as one of the few clear avenues, in addition to his Douglas plan, which he, is, he has you know, a release and is driving. But I think he views faith as, a, as an authentic way that he's hoping to build some bridge into uh, the African-American community because that, that narrative that he is pulling so poorly among black voters has just hounded his campaign. Do you, do you see that? And, and do you see other candidates? I, I mean, I'm thinking... Specifically, I think a big divide between Cory Booker and Kamala Harris uh, is the, the former's uh, comfort and history uh, speaking directly from a faith context. And, and for Harris, that hasn't been too common. So uh, how vital do you see a faith playing first in, in, in with what Pete's doing, but then just generally in South Carolina? I guess the thing I'd add there is it certainly played a role in 2008. Uh, I, I was uh, working on President Obama's campaign there. And uh, you might remember, you know, he was holding uh, faith basically gospel concerts across South Carolina in the summer before the primary in a really bold way that I think sent a, sent a message that allowed him to, to, to spike uh, in the winter. And so, you know, I think there's a historical role for faith, but yeah, interested in uh, particularly black church outreach and, and the role that I'll play in South Carolina. Well, I mean, seriously, the black church is, is going to be so central to this election, you know, just as central as diners in New Hampshire or, you know, farms in Iowa, you are going to see uh, the Black church really taking a, a primary role in this primary election. You mentioned Mayor Pete and, and his his faith and, and how prominently he displays that. I mean, on his way to the debate on Tuesday, he stopped off uh, at a church to meet with the priest, you know, kind of Rocky style, right? Uh, before, before he goes into the fight, he, he stops off with this with this priest for, for a quick blessing. You know, interestingly, Mayor Pete was telling me when I interviewed him uh, recently that, you know, his faith has really helped him to connect with, uh, to the extent that he is connecting with Black leadership, Black LGBT faith leaders have sat down with Pete and, and he has a message that he, he has felt, you know, that his faith helps kind of open a dialogue. 
And obviously with them, with them sharing that LGBT status, like that, that, that is something that they can kind of get out of the way and just kind of get to the issues and, and talk about them through uh, kind of this prism of, of shared faith, you know, sitting down with Reverend Al early on to talk about issues of race. Uh, they had a launching point of faith to kind of do that with. Uh, you, Cory Booker, you mentioned uh, somebody who uh, definitely seems comfortable in the pulpit and take on kind of a pastoral tone uh, sometimes when he's delivering his remarks. I saw him uh, in action uh, to that effect a little bit for the anniversary of Bloody Sunday earlier in the primary. But, you know, one thing I will say about Kamala Harris, I mean, she she is kind of in all things. She's, I guess, a little bit more guarded about her faith, but but is a person of faith for sure. And when I interviewed her, uh, one thing that was really interesting that struck me is, you know, I was asking her kind of the electability question, right? Like if she, you know, what what is it going to take for her to convince voters to make a choice, frankly, that they've never made before, right? Which is to elect a Black woman. And the way that she framed her answer, she actually brought up Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is a confidence and hope for an assurance about what we don't see. So she's talking about her campaign in terms of, you know, doing something that we've never done like that. That is kind of the story of black folks in this country. And that is something that our faith teaches us. And so that I thought was really interesting and, and told me she is somebody who, you know, is, is certainly um, a person of, of faith. And she, she mentioned she's mentioned that, you know, in her in her biography, uh, you know, she referred to that. So um, I think but but to your point, I mean, she definitely is not as public with it necessarily. As, as a Cory Booker or a Pete Buttigieg, for example. Yeah, right. And I think, um, you know, she, she spoke at Ebenezer, I believe, in April or maybe it was May. Correct. And, uh, you know, it seemed to me to kind of phone it in. Uh, but then it's been interesting lately to, to see her. Uh, I've, she's done some other church visits lately where, where her message has just been been honed in a way that it wasn't earlier in the campaign. I think it's a key thing to watch as this race develops, just her, her development. Yeah. I think absolutely. You know, I, I, I don't want to um, go without mentioning Senator Elizabeth Warren and Faith, because I think, you know, a lot of people wonder, you know, why is it that she's resonating, especially with Black women as of late? What is it about her that resonates? And I think that as much as her being a professor is her background as a Sunday school teacher. The way that she is able to put together a story and go from the micro to the macro and then shift and make it personal is something that is very effective. And, it, and I mean, frankly, it's a Sunday school teacher trick. And I think that that may be why she is so good at connecting with folks, uh, because to be, to be an effective Sunday school teacher, you have to know how to tell a good story. <laughs> That's you right. You have to know how to do that, right? That's you have to know right. how to get, you know, get, get the kids' attention. Yeah. Oh, what, what are um, what are some big milestones uh, or flashpoints that you see, you know, uh, between now and, and January, February that, that folks should be looking out for? What, what are you going to be paying you know, special attention to with the race generally as we head closer to actual, you know, actual voting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, for me, I think uh, I'm just kind of continuing to watch what I see as kind of this black primary within a primary playing out. Uh, and I think that that is something that's happening. Uh, like I said, at the black, at, at many black cultural institutions, um, you know, we've already seen a lot of candidates at things like the NAACP, the urban league, 
I think you're going to see um, black candidates rolling up to homecomings, uh, you know, in the fall at some of these black colleges. Um, HBCUs are definitely going to be um, very central to this campaign as well. As a matter of fact, the uh, upcoming debate in September is at Texas Southern University, which is an HBCU. I don't know that there's been a presidential debate at an HBCU before, but that speaks to the diversity of this campaign and the importance of of Black voters in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move, you know, this is still sort of 2020 related, but uh, there was a political story uh, that came out earlier this week by Michael Calderon. Uh, the headline is Black Journalists Push Media to Cover a Hyperracial Moment in Politics. And uh, you are quoted in this piece. Uh, several of your colleagues are quoted as uh, describing working in media environments where Black reporters are often put in the place of having to act as sort of a racial ombudsman and sort of advocates within their newsroom to cover the race uh, through the, the lens that seems to be very salient and sometimes running up against obstacles and obviously seeing major progress. But I just wanted to, this piece I think was so important. I, I'm just so interested in what you thought of uh, your thoughts on the article and just how salient this has been for, for your work and where you see, you know, progress and, and where you see some room for improvement. Yeah. Uh, well, I thank you again. I appreciate you, you saying that. And I, and I really appreciate the response that we've been getting uh, to the article um, because I do think it's an important conversation for us to be having early before we get well into 2020 so that we don't uh, repeat some of the mistakes around uh, race and, and political coverage Uh that, that were made in 2016. But, you know, I mean, this is frankly an alarm that I uh, have been trying to sound uh, for a while, especially among journalists with whom I had, rela- you know, I have relationships, my colleagues, uh, you know, who, who, you know, with whom I have a mutual trust and respect, you know, they don't, they're not saying racially charged or racially tinged, whatever that means, or racially infused, because they, want to avoid race. It's just that it, it, it takes, it take, it, it's muscle memory. It's practice. It, learning how to recognize what these things are and also getting more comfortable with confronting racism and calling it out when and where it exists. And, and if you frame it, I mean, because, you know, racist, racism, uh, the conversation around racism can be emotionally fraught uh, and it can be uncomfortable, frankly, for, for white journalists who are frankly, white people in America who happen to work in newsrooms, right? And so bringing them along uh, means, part of bringing them along, I think, means framing this through the lens of journalism. And what I mean by that is, you know, what we are here to do is to leave behind the most accurate and truthful first draft of history. And we do not do that if we do not tell the truth about what is going on in this moment, about who and, and, and where we are as a country. And racism, frankly, is part of that. And so if we can be rooted in uh, our political and racial history as a country and, and, and the political and racial reality of our present, then I think that we are going to be more effective at that. Uh, I've written another piece that, that ran kind of uh, headed into this year. It was a journalism prediction. And, and what I was trying to get people to understand is, you know, that what I said was that, you know, we're not in the hint business, right? Like we're here to report facts. And, you know, there are the difficult facts of racism are included in that. And even though many of us know racism when we see it, you know, our default setting setting can be to try to use euphemisms 
to say what it is that we really mean. And so when I see those kinds of phrases, uh, I will often ask, what did you mean by this? Or what is it that we're trying to say here? Because if you have a conversation, what you will a lot of times find out is that the reporter was trying to point out something that was racist. Yeah, right. right but right, did right. not say that directly. Well, it's it's a critical conversation. Uh, I believe that you were uh, a guest on the Church Politics Podcast and Campaign's flagship podcast at, almost right after you wrote that other article you mentioned. And we were able to talk about it a little bit there. Uh, it, it, I've been following you especially closely since seeing that article. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful that you join us for this conversation. For for listeners who want to stay up with your work, up with your voice, and uh, again, be able to uh, understand what's happening in this Democratic primary in, in particular in a, in a, a clearer way, uh, what's the best way to stay in touch with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is very easy. It's just at E-Marvelous. E-Marvelous. Do you have a a website or is there a link at AP where they could see all your your articles? Absolutely. I mean, I post a lot of my work, but um, APnews.com will take care of of all of your coverage needs, uh, a la ethnicity. That's that's the easiest place to to find my work. And you can just Google my name, Aaron Haynes Wack, and, and, and my latest stories. Uh, we'll come right up. You can also download our app, AP News, uh, hey. on, on the App Store. So <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That. And we'll continue to share uh, your work here on the podcast and the crux and the call. And uh, so grateful for you. Uh, hope to stay in touch as this primary unfolds. And Absolutely. just grateful for you. I think your I'll work. be a little busy. So I, I, <laughs> I suspect that maybe I can come back and chat about a few things if, if that's okay. With oh, you. that would be wonderful. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be something else to see how this all unfolds. And uh, just want to encourage you in, in your important work. And I know many of our listeners are just so grateful for you as am I. So uh, thank you. And, and again, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to call my uh, book uh, after this election. Uh, it's going to be something else. <laughs> that could be a title for the, for the book. So. Yeah. That's good. All right, Aaron. Thank Thank you. I am so glad that we were able to share that conversation with you. Uh, Aaron is someone who's going to continue to shine a light on important themes in the Democratic primary and in our politics generally. I urge you to follow her. I urge you to read her reporting. It's just critical, critical uh, stuff if you want to understand how 2020 is unfolding. And that's what we try and do for you uh, at the Faith 2020 podcast. We're going to continue to do it. I'm so glad that we could bring this uh, special episode to you around the debates. Uh, As you know, uh, our mission here is to help you uh, understand uh, 2020 through the lens of faith. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. You can help us by visiting iTunes and leaving a review so that more people can learn about us. Share the link for where you listen to the uh, Faith 2020 podcast on social media. Uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, I, we're going to continue to grow this podcast, bring to you uh, some of the leading experts uh, and some of the leading actors uh, in this presidential race. Uh, and we could uh, use your support to uh, encourage and promote uh, this work. All right, friends, uh, until next time, 
and we're going to have much to talk about. August is always crazy in presidential politics and crazy in unexpected ways. So I think we'll have quite a bit to talk about in the next episode. Until then, be blessed. Have a good week. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the And Campaign. Learn more about the And Campaign by visiting andcampaign.org. That's A-N-D campaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. Our guest this week was Aaron Hainswack, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020.